This is episode 72 of The New Disruptors, community-supported appliculture with Henry Smith. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. The New Disruptors is brought to you in part this week by New Relic. High fives to all the rule breakers and disruptors. Here's to working late nights to wearing oversized concentration-enhancing headphones on your furrowed brows. They thank you. The entire internet thanks you. Visit newrelic.com slash disruptors to learn more about their integrated web application and monitoring. And if you'd like to become a direct supporter of this podcast, visit patreon.com slash newdisruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. You can become a patron for as little as $1 per month and directly support this show. Thanks this week to patrons Andy Bayo, Jonathan Mann, and Abraham Finberg. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that shouts out, set the chemical quartz to three. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You might also like The Sword and Laser, a science fiction and fantasy themed book club podcast hosted by Veronica Belmont and Tom Merritt. Find all of us at boingboing.net and click on podcasts. Henry Smith is a games app developer and the evil genius behind the addictive multiplayer game Space Team. Space Team won oodles of awards, and it has the added benefit or problem of being free. Henry has an active Kickstarter to fund future development of free work over the next year, and we'll get into that Kickstarter. Henry, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It, it's a pleasure to have you. And, you know, my family plays Space Team from time to time. Sometimes stresses out my kids slightly. Sometimes they die for it. And um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a great game. There's, it's not like anything I've ever played before. I'm, I'm curious how long this percolated before you put it into, uh, into app form, how long you were thinking about games like this or this particular game. Well, this particular game—I've I, I, got to admit—it wasn't my—it wasn't my first uh, first idea. When I when I quit my industry job, I had a much bigger project in mind, uh, but I decided that it would be a bad idea to start with something really ambitious because it would it would take me a year, and then I'd run out of money, and I'd be really sad. <laughs> so I, uh, I I forced myself to do something really small, and um, and I was worried for a while that I just wouldn't I wouldn't be proud of something that it only took me a few weeks, or, uh, a couple of months to build. But uh, but luckily, um, I, I came up with Space Team, and uh, well, and it sort of took off beyond my wildest expectations. So that was that was great. Well, there's something about the gameplay that's um, that's compelling and and different. Did you take inspiration from something else? Because I don't recall playing anything that's like this before. Well, yeah, I take a uh, I took a lot of inspiration from from board games. I, I love playing board games, and and there's like a social aspect there uh, that's very different from from what video game people call social games, which are sort of Facebook. Uh, style things uh so but i yeah i wanted to i wanted to play a game where where people were were sitting together in the same room and and talking to each other and i i didn't know of any games like that so uh, i decided to try building one myself uh to see if it would work and uh, it appears to work oh yeah because most social games uh like i remember uh, an early ipad adaptation was uh, scrabble um and you could play it they had actually i think a bluetooth version or they had some versions early on in the early versions of ios that had let i don't think it has great sharing tools but you could be in a room with people and you could create kind of like a you know a, a 
what do you call it when everyone gets together to play in a house? I forgot what that's called. House <laughs> Wi-Fi, land or something. Like, or, like, yeah, yeah. Local, local multiplayer. Yeah, so you um, could do something like that and you could all play Scrabble around, you know, and you could, and it was great because for something like Scrabble, it's useful to be, or, you know, Words with Friends came along too. It's useful to, you could play in real time and you could hide the stuff you needed to. So right. each display was different. But Space Team is kind of a whole different level. Like you've got, both uh, for people who haven't seen it, I guess we have to describe it. For so, so there's different consoles. Everyone playing has a different console, and but you you made this so it would work on iPhone and iPad. It doesn't require an iPad, which is which is interesting too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to I wanted to make it portable and easy to easy to use, and it doesn't. I, rem- I remember the the Scrabble. I think the Scrabble that you're talking about. The board was on an iPad, and you you lay it in the middle of the table, and then oh yeah, that was ev- one everyone mode. got everyone got uh, the tile rack. On yeah, their phone, you, yeah. And so, so you, you can play have, with four mm-hmm. iPhones and one iPad in the middle, and it, I think it was the most expensive Scrabble game uh, that existed <laughs> because you had to buy all this technology for it. But uh, but it was just it was to sh- you know it was to show. I think the uh, the actual Tile Rack app was free, so it was just a, a demo of the technology. Uh, so yeah, there are, there were things like that 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 existed beforehand. In, for sure. in Space Team, the uh, I think the gameplay that's so hilarious is that. It requires. There's like a neurological problem. <laughs> it's like a. It's like a social issue. You get people yelling, which is fun. I mean, that creates a different kind of atmosphere. You have to sort of scream things out. People have to talk over each other. You're suddenly in a Robert Altman movie. Everyone has to talk at the same time, and you're trying to parse what people are saying, and you're trying to look at something visually in front of you, and you're trying to take the right action while you're also looking up. And the game. If I understand it right, it seems like the intensity increases too. It doesn't remain at the same oh, yeah. uh, as a progression. So you start out slow and it gets more and more people shouting, hitting buttons, pulling levers. This all seems very well integrated. Yeah, yeah, it keeps getting harder and harder until you inevitably die. And then you get a medal. Inevitably um, but, die. That's good. <laughs> yeah, you always lose, Space Team. It's not about, it's not about winning. It's about, uh, it's about playing, I guess. But, um, it was a great discovery too. I noticed that like the panels will start to swing down, like when things fall apart, and you could you can pull them back up if you. And I didn't realize that initially. You can get them back up into place even while goo is leaking out and so forth. <laughs> yeah, no, in fact, I uh, yeah I, I I bring this up in uh in in the Space Team Manifesto, which I posted recently, which is which goes over some of the uh, philosophy behind the campaign and, and and my games about things like that, things like the slime and the and the panels. I don't actually I intentionally don't tell people that you can do this, uh, like in the game. Or even when I'm when I'm showing it to people, there's no tutorial that says you can wipe the slime off. I just let people discover it for themselves, and that's uh, and letting them do that, letting them because eventually they're going to like touch a panel on the slime, and they're going to see that, that that where their where their finger was, the slime is gone, and they're going to realize and and have that aha moment, and and suddenly that like this possibility opens, and they can do something they couldn't do before. That's that's really rewarding, I think, to let people discover that. That sense of discovery is hard to build too. I think I, I remember when I got the first. Uh... The iPod, Apple, back when I actually wrote about Apple stuff and uh, was writing for a newspaper back when people cared about newspapers, uh, <laughs> Apple sent me and a number of people the pre-release iPod. And this is back when Apple you know, sent things out before they released. All, oh, such yeah, a wow. weird condition. And I happened to be visiting uh, my niece who was in her late teens at the time. And uh, I'd messed around with it a little bit. And I handed it to her. And I said, here, make it do something. And she looked at it. And five seconds later, she had music playing and is working through it and then sort of figuring out the menus. And I thought, OK, I think this is going to succeed because I handed it <laughs> to a teenager and she likes it. And she did not have to learn an interface. And that kind of discovery, I mean, I think Apple wants to have its devices have that. But I think they almost encourage uh, the way in which apps – I mean, they don't encourage you to do this specifically, but the kinds of controls and things that are available, they seem to encourage 
I mean, they do seem, I guess, in t- implicitly to encourage you as a developer to create a sense of discovery in, in what you do. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, with a touch interface, I don't know. Yeah, well, it was it was very important for me to keep uh, to have Space Team on on touch devices so that it actually it felt like you were pushing buttons and turning dials and flicking switches uh, because it's all about yeah being at a spaceship control panel like that. I mean, I didn't I didn't use any of Apple's uh, controls because I had to reinvent my own my own set, but I, I did I did make sure to keep them uh, like uh, as intuitive as possible as as like real world analogs so that people would understand that you know it's a slider. I've I've used these before. And just uh, know how to use it. It's confusing explaining to my small children, or well, they're seven and nine now, uh, what some of those things are. They've never seen certain kinds of switches and dials. They're just not oh, part yeah. of their life. And it cra- and it's not like they live in a totally electronic world. But I'm like, oh yeah, they've never actually like. I'm like, turn the potentiometer. I don't know what I said. Turn the dial. I don't say turn the potentiometer. <laughs> yeah. my, my children, they're very bright, but never mind. But uh, but they don't. You know, it, the, they're not used to a physical action. They haven't hmm. you know breadboarded and. That's interesting. Yeah. Although what's interesting, I just got a they got an electronics kit from their grandmother for uh, for one of my kids' birthdays. And they are so into the idea of these snap-together electronics kits that I think it might spark that kind of analog hands-on interest that I feel is, is often missing from um, what people do. And I, I think space-time, because it has that, um, what, you know, what you say, it has that almost an analog feel to it. You have to do things that are, or that are an analog of controlling analog devices, that it uh, encourages hand-eye coordination and, and an interest in, in um, sort of real things, even though it's virtual. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I love I love pushing buttons. Yeah, I love those uh, electronics kits when I was a kid as well. And uh, and I think I think a lot of games are missing missing some of that playful playful discovery and just being able to touch things and and seeing something happen. Well, there's a simplicity too that many games get uh, overwrought about the complexity of them. And I, uh, in a future episode of this program, I talked to uh, Greg Woland, who's uh, behind Threes, and uh, mm. they went through this whole process. And Threes is a really very simple game, but they went through this baroque period in development, and they had a back way out of it to come to the thing that seems like, oh, well, this must be the thing they thought of. It's like no, they went through six months of going down dead ends. Uh, help you wow. in a future yeah. episode to talk about that. But I, I think Space Team Four it has it has the feeling of complexity because you have a lot packed into to it, but it doesn't. It's not complex to play at all. And I wonder how you try to balance those factors when you were. You said you built the game actually relatively quickly. Did you shop it around with other people and say, "Look, tell me how this goes"? I mean, it's a cooperative game. You had to play it with other people. How did you try to balance that, or did that did that happen to work out well in your original conception? Uh, well, my original idea was was just to make it pretty simple. Um, I did I did have other sort of t- kinds of controls in mind, but I decided that they would just be too complex to build, and 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 also I didn't I didn't have enough time. Like I gave myself this really short timeline. I wanted to finish the game in in a month. It ended up taking me three months, but um, that was partly because I enjoyed working on it so much that I went, <laughs> I gave it a bit of extra love. But yeah, it was important for me to keep it really simple so that you immediately understand how to do it. And even spectators, you know, if you if you watch someone play the game for like ten seconds, you can sort of understand how how it works. And and people want to join in, and often crowds start form if you're playing it in a in a public area. Did did you enlist friends or or family? I mean, how did how did you test whether it was actually feasible to play it? Because there must be some difficulty level associated. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes too high, sometimes too low. Yeah, of course. I know I had to test with friends and uh, and and my girlfriend did a lot of testing as well. Uh but yeah, I had uh, uh for a couple a few uh, a few weeks in a row I I uh organized uh, space team potlucks where I I made food and got everyone to bring food to my house uh, as a as a thinly veiled excuse to to make them test space team with me. Uh and, and yeah, the first one was was went horribly wrong because the game was full of bugs and it didn't really work properly, but we still had a fun time eating food and and chatting. 
but then after that, I um, I fixed the problems in it, and it actually was kind of fun to play. Uh, and and yeah, I got a lot of got a lot of good ideas from from my friends and and people and just watching people play. I talk a lot on this podcast with people about you know independence and and going in alone, and and this is kind of the ultimate thing. It seems like to me like you did nearly everything associated with this. Describe the different professions you had to engage in in order to produce this game beyond programming because <laughs> there were a lot of other things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I didn't I didn't do it entirely uh, by myself. I, I had a lot of help from uh, from from Sarah, my my girlfriend, and. Uh, I have a musician friend who did all the music because uh, as much as I, I, I'd like to write my own music for my games, I, I actually have a keyboard that I hook up to my computer sometimes. I'm not that good. So uh, so I, I like working with other people for things that I'm, I can't do very well. And I also had an, an artist to help uh, help with the final art. I did I do some concept art myself because I, I have an idea in my head what I want the game to look like. And so I do it really badly and then show it to someone and then they, they clean it up. So yeah, I did. I did work with an artist and musician, but um, I did everything else. So this, but it's a small production team. It's you. It's you are the core of this, and you brought people in as, as, as needed. Yeah, and and they they just worked uh, very uh, very part time, and uh, I'm the I'm the only sort of full time person on the project. I just mm-hmm. I just got my friends to help out, and and uh, and so yeah, it's not um, they're not employees or or even contractors really, because uh, because I'm very close with them. So. Uh, so I'll probably collaborate. My future projects are going to be more ambitious. So I, I'd, I'd like to continue collaborating, but I don't really want to start a, a business. I don't want to sort of hire four or five employees and, and start a, a big company. And I, uh, I always like to talk about the reception of things when people are, are surprised. So you, you programmed this. It wound up taking you three months. Uh, you were happy with the result. You tested it. You put it out there. Uh, it won a pile of awards. It got a lot of attention. And, and we can talk about the, the financial end too. I don't want to talk about that. But, but uh, uh, how surprised were you by the reception of it? Did you, did you think it was going to – did you feel like you had something that was really going to make a, a bang as your first time out? Or were you more internally modest about, well, you know, this is great. I'm happy with it. I'm going to get this out so I can work on the next thing. Well, I was, I mean, I was definitely surprised about how, how far it spread. Um, but, uh, and I think, I think keeping it free helped that. Uh, I guess we might talk about that later, but mm-hmm. um, I, I knew, I knew it was, it, it was a lot more fun than I expected it to be like in development towards the end, which is why I, I actually, I started to add the, um, uh, the upgrades in the game. I, it was originally going to be totally free, but then right at the end, I said, Hey, this is actually kind of fun. Maybe I should, maybe people will actually pay for it. And so I, I added a few sort of tip jar um, upgrades that you can you can buy for a dollar each. But it was it was, they were sort of they were added they add only extra functionality. It wasn't like the base game isn't isn't affected by it. So yeah, I I uh, I, I knew I knew it was a, it was a, a different idea uh, because as I say, it, it was a game that it was a sort of local multiplayer game that felt more like a board game, and I hadn't seen a lot of games like that. But I didn't realize how how much it resonate with people and. Um, and I mainly just uh, submitted to like these festivals and, and award competitions on a whim, and to sort of uh, help encourage me to finish the game because the deadlines were coming up, and I had to <laughs> had to send something to them. Some of that came with money too, right? There was actually uh, some cash prizes as part of this. Yes, uh, yeah, I was extremely lucky to uh, to win the Amaze Indie Game Festival, which is uh, held in Berlin every year. Uh, I just came back from the 2014 Amaze, in fact, a couple few days ago. Uh, but yeah, the, last year I, I won that award, and and it came with a 5,000 euro prize, which was which was pretty nice because uh, the game isn't making that much money on its own. So so that was a huge help. Yeah, I want to dig into that a little bit because uh, I think as we've talked through this, it's clear space time. This was a 
I think you talk about this in your blog too, and, and we can talk about this uh, new entry in your blog as well, because I think it's very relevant to what people are trying to do in their own careers. Is, uh, has a lot of relevance in general. Uh, but space time wasn't. This wasn't your big commercial project. This was an. Ex- this was you trying to uh, establish yourself on your own, make something, get it out there, and kind of um, seemingly to to my perception on the outside of what you're doing, produce something, ship something, and then you'd would you feel then that you'd you'd actually could move forward because you'd shown you could do one thing and then now it's like I've gotten that out and now I can do the next thing? Yeah, that, that's that's pretty much it. I mean, it was uh, my, my goals were, were to uh, learn uh, iPhone programming because I'd never actually made an iPhone game before. Um, and let's uh, learn the process, learn the app store, get something out that I could point to and say, and say look, here's what I did. I, like I have this game already. Now maybe pay money for my next games. Uh, but also, yeah, just just to uh, justify that, like I'd had experiences of, of of spending a long time on games that never never shipped or that, or just broken prototypes that didn't weren't fun, and so I wanted to I wanted to have something that I could I could call my own and say and say this is mine. Uh, so so it was really just a just a, a sort of practice project, um, uh, but uh, it's, it's turned into a lot more than that now. Well, and you mentioned so the game was released free, so that was part of the intent, and then you added uh, these like not necessary but more like tip jar uh, in-app purchases late in the process. And uh, you've been very uh, straightforward about the money that's come in from this. You have a page on your site, I'll link in the show notes, that shows the amount of uh, cash that's come in from different means. And and I think in a recent blog post you mentioned um, you know somewhere it sounds like about you know, several thousand dollars, including this Amaze Award from uh, prizes, and then you know maybe eighteen thousand dollars from all the different versions of the gay Android, iOS, and, uh, and a tiny bit from Amazon, it <laughs> looks like, yeah. uh, for it. Where, where did that fit in the scheme of things? Are you, is, is 25, you know, roughly $25,000, does that feel at this point good for this game or bad given that you intended to release it for free? Uh, well, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I definitely see the game as a success, which you might not do if you're, if you're purely profit-focused, uh, like a publisher or, or business person. And, you know, you have to justify things to your shareholders or whatever. Because, yeah, now I've been working. I mean, I said it took, took me three months to make the game. But now I've been I've been traveling it around to, to all these shows and festivals and supporting it for basically a year now. And so so it certainly hasn't made back that money. But it's uh, but it's made more than I, I thought it would. And it's and it's been able to keep me going like I haven't had my savings haven't haven't gone down as much as fast as I thought they would. So it's uh, yeah, I think it's and it makes sense, I think, now that I have this this community of supporters uh, and, and fans of the game to keep supporting it and and, and, and using it uh, to help me make games in the future. Because originally I was just going to yeah uh, release it and then immediately start working on my next game. And that, that plan was, was totally changed. That's the trouble with success, right? Is that, and, and, yeah. I mean, although it's a great thing is now that people know your name and it seems like, you know, talk all the time about how do you cut through the noise of everyone doing stuff. Like I noticed in one interview, someone asked you about the sort of state of indie gaming, and I've talked to a lot of folks about that recently too, or indie game development, I should say. And and I don't, it seems like there's maybe never been a as robust a time in the history of game development. Maybe at a few weird points with you know 30 years ago, where there were small companies and individuals. But isn't this the? I mean, I know that you don't you weren't programming 30 years ago, but but do you feel that is this is this an incredibly robust time to be an indie game developer? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really good time. The uh, I mean, the, the barriers to entry are getting lower and lower. Um, the tools are getting better. The distribution models are, are getting better. So it's 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 so easy just to to make something and, and immediately get it in front of millions of people. 
Uh, now, of course, everyone has this. Uh, like the same is true for everyone. So yeah, it's 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 easy to get lost lost in the mess as well. But uh, but I think it's a it's a great time to be an indie, and and at the same time, and they, these probably feed into each other. It's a it's a very risky time to be in the in the in the industry in the in the AAA industry because um, you know jobs aren't as secure as people thought they were, and studios keep closing like every few weeks. Let's pause for a moment so I can tell you about one of this week's sponsors, MailRoute. You know how to do business, and the best way is with like-minded companies. MailRoute is the best of what they do, and that is all that they do. They filter out spam and viruses so you don't have to. If you're sorting through spam each morning, you're wasting your time. With one simple click, your domain, mail server, and other precious resources are protected. MailRoute removes all worry of infections, server downtime, expensive maintenance, and wasting bandwidth CPU and time. They filter your mail, quarantine any suspicious mail off-site, and deliver only clean mail to your mailboxes. You can save time, money, and worry by using the best in the business, and that's MailRoute. Focusing on the efficient delivery of clean email since 1997. And that's it. Now, you can get 10% off for the lifetime of your account and a free 15-day trial. Go to MailRoute.net slash Disrupt to start your trial today. That's MailRoute.net slash Disrupt. And now, back to the program. Well, you came, you came out of that world, and uh, you spent 10 years in what I know the uh, – it's funny. I didn't hear the word AAA uh, until just like last year. I'm so outside the games world. But, I mean, there's the big studios. They spend millions or tens of millions of dollars sometimes to develop these huge games. It can take multiple years, and then the entire future of the company can rest on one release or maybe a couple releases. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those produce hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues and it works, but there's so much like film studios, uh, although film studios even have better diversified risks a lot of the time. But um, what was it like inside that kind of world with the, like lots of money, everything on the, you know, hanging on the, the, um, the release of something and long periods of time. Uh, what was it like to be inside that kind of environment? Well, it was obviously very different, and uh, and I mean, I was just a, a programmer, so I didn't, I don't, I didn't deal with all the money and the politics yeah. and everything at the high level. But um, but uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it was uh, it was good. I, I I mean, I enjoyed my job. I enjoyed my time working there. Oh, that's but, great. Um, but uh, but I uh, I could see I could see stuff happening like outside. In, I mean, I was lucky enough to work at at, at Bioware, which is a very well regarded uh, company in there, and that they still seem to be going strong. And are well loved by fans and, and other other studios, but um, but yeah, it, there are so many. I mean, there are websites now like that just exist to uh, document studio closures and and help wow. people find jobs. Yeah. Because because it's happening so much, and and yeah, like like you say, if you, if you if you release a game, sometimes it can make millions of dollars and fund your next game. But if it doesn't make millions of dollars, then uh, then you know you're bankrupt and the entire company has to close. So it's totally unsustainable. There's sort of there's these different models that I've grown to understand about. I mean, console gaming and PC gaming, and then mobile gaming, and even Facebook gaming. Like all of these, and, and many of the, the much of the diversity seems to be recent. I mean, especially mobile gaming and the, ca- the casual gaming category. But when you started ten years ago in the on the AAA world, it seemed like things were probably a little simpler when you were thinking about the future. You know, could I do this on my own? Well. How do I get a game out there? The number of platforms were fewer. It seemed like promotion was necessary. Is that is that you know correct? Like twelve years ago, when you were getting into this, would you have thought about trying to release an independent game then, or did you feel like you needed to be part of a bigger entity to to be able to be involved in, the, in that world at all? 
Um, I, I certainly thought about making games on my own. And in fact, I had made games on my own before that. Mm. As um, I'd made simple shareware games and they didn't really make much money. But And this was when I was still like in high school. So so my, my situation was very different. But um, but no, I, I mean, I wanted to... I wanted to see what it was like to build these big games and, and work with other people and big teams. Uh, but I always had, I always had my own ideas on the side. When you're working in a big team, you know, even if, even if you're a designer, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a designer, I was a programmer. So, so I didn't get to do any design, but even if I were, were a designer, I wouldn't be able to have, wouldn't have total creative control. You know, you have to work with, with everyone else on the team and, uh, and you understand restrictions. So yeah, you, you lose some freedom. But uh, and I, so I always had ideas uh, of games I wanted to make on the side, smaller projects, and I and I, I usually did uh, you know experiment at home when I wasn't at, at work on things. But they were just they were just a sort of it was just a hobby. But then uh, then I realized that I uh, towards the end of my my time in the industry, I realized that I wanted to uh, actually uh, start doing more with my side projects. And and for a while that was okay, but then. Uh, then uh, Bioware got bought by Electronic Arts, which yes. was uh, a much much bigger publisher, and they had different rules for these things. And Electronic Arts basically uh, owns all your creative uh, output if you work for them, uh, which I think is a really bad thing. I think these these policies need to change because uh, because yeah, it, it meant that. Well, they say anything you do at any time, even in your private life, they own if it's in the field. Yeah, yeah, private private life, uh, your own computers, your own technology, uh, they they own it. Were you working in California at the time? No, I was in Canada. Oh, in Canada, oh, that's interesting. See, I thought Cal- there's not to get too deep in the legal side, but there, it's interesting because there's a lot of there's a lot of U.S. law about whether employers can own the output of people's work outside of work hours, and some of it goes one way and some goes another. And California, where some of the game studios are located, is I think particularly favorable towards employees and a lot of things. But that's that's kind of horrible that they would want to own anything you created, even when you're you know off camping or. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's. Uh, I mean, I mean, I loved working at Bioware, but um, but they definitely had some policies um, that uh, that I disagreed with, and so uh, and yeah, I tried to I tried to change these. In fact, while I was there, I you know I I talked to people about them, and uh, and and it's possible that they will change, but it takes a long time for this kind of change to happen in a company that big. But this sort of it seems like they're forcing out anybody like yourself who has enough ideas and creativity outside the scope of the job and is willing to walk away from a salary, and you know, although maybe less secure given how many companies are closing and I'm not saying mm-hmm. about um, Bioware electronic arts in particular, but you know, less, maybe a less secure industry now. And they're telling you that your side projects have to belong to them as well. It seems like a way to push the Henry Smiths of the world out of <laughs> <laughs> out and on their own and become bigger, become competitors in their own right at the low level. Well, it makes no sense to me. Cause that, that's, that's ostensibly the reason I think they have these policies is, you know, they're afraid of competition. They're afraid if you release, if you launch something on your own, uh, then it will compete with uh, with the stuff they do, and it's conflict of interest. And I don't know, the investors don't get happy. They have all sorts of reasons, but it's very snow crashy. It's like you know, snow crash seemed really dystopian when it came out in uh, I don't know, was it twenty years ago now, something like that. And now snow crash. I mean, uh, readers or listeners who haven't read it, it's uh, you know, part of it is how um, software. I would say part of it is software development firms wanting to control how their employees even. Think, <laughs> and I thought this is such a crazy dystopia. Now I'm like, okay, no, that was just a prediction of the future. It's like if you could, if you could be uh, software companies, if they had a way to lock down your thoughts so that when you left the office, you were unable to actually think about or use the information that you gained in the office, they would do it. I think some of them would at least. Well, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, because they want to hire creative entrepreneurs to work for them, and th- those people are going to be creative on their own time as well. So it, it makes sense to encourage that. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't 
restrict uh, restrict that. Well, they could create incentives. I mean, there are organizations that when people do work in their spare time, these companies have ways to then uh, license and sell what people do, whether it's in software or elsewhere. So they encourage you not to, you know, not to slack on your job, or some places actually give you time to work on other projects within the company. But even, they, you know, they encourage employees. Oh, you've got a side project. And um, Alaska Airlines. This is a little off topic, but Alaska Airlines famously one of their, I want to say, a maintenance engineer came up with a tablet-like entertainment device long before the iPad that was designed to let them do in-flight entertainment without having to wire because Alaska is very uh, it's not not low cost budget but uh, they didn't want to put miles of wires in every plane it's very expensive and it breaks down and whatever so uh, this guy developed the system and Alaska licensed it so instead of you know suing him or whatever <laughs> they became the norm for them to provide in-flight entertainment and it seems like that <laughs> should be encouraged at companies like the ones you're describing but uh, yeah, yeah. But bully for you so uh, this is always that um, uh, looking back at your life, it's only two years ago, but you made the break to go independent and on your own. How difficult was that to leave? It seems like they made it easy for you, but was it a hard thing to say, I'm going to walk away from a salary and what I've been doing for uh, you know a decade? Uh, not really, because I'd been planning it for many years. Like I'd, I'd, I've been saving up so that I had I had one year of, of savings. Um, so that I, I knew I could, I could just work on my own for a year, not make any money. And a, even if I didn't, uh, make any money, then I I would just probably come back, uh, either to either to Bioware or to another another company that would have me, and uh, and at least I would have spent a year doing something I loved. So I knew that I it wasn't a huge risk. I was I was pretty confident that I like I had I had some experience in the industry, so I was I was confident that I'd be able to find find work again afterwards if I needed to. So I had these I had the savings and uh, and I had these game ideas and and it just and it was I was getting to to the end of the project I was working on. Uh, so, so everything sort of just um, just uh, came together, and it seemed like the right time, the right time for me to take the year off. And I, I called it my year off. In fact, um, at the time, I was expecting it to just be a year, and because I didn't have any expectations. And and uh, but it's now, uh, yeah, going on two years, and uh, I'm still still going. So. Did you get distracted at any point? I've, I've heard this a lot when people go on their own and. They're ready to do the, uh, the, you know, the great American novel, video game, uh, website, uh, e-commerce project, whatever, or great Canadian. In your case, the great, Cana- the great Canadian, the great North American. Uh, insert your country here. Uh, and people, uh, I don't know, America has this tendency of like, we're going to do this. Everyone has to leave and do this totally extraordinary thing or you fail. It's like, no, you can actually do ordinary things. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, but uh, I talked to Greg uh, Noss on this podcast uh, a few months ago about um, – we talked a lot about failure because he left a – job of 20 years and and really was immobilized in some ways. But one of the things that hit him was that there was a lot of uh, sort of bites here and there because people were like, oh, well, you're available. Would you do some work on this? Could you do work on that? And he did enough of that in part that it d- distracted him maybe from his uh, his main goal. Did you have people coming to you and say, oh, now you're available. Would you work on whatever? Or did you stay focused on, on doing your independent work? No, I, I wanted to stay f- focused. I mean, the reason I took took this time off was because I wanted to focus on full time on my own project. So I, yeah, I mean, I I got like headhunter emails and stuff every every few weeks, but that that happened even when I was working uh, for for these uh, big companies as well. I just I would just ignore them or, or tell them that I'm I'm happy where I am or I'm 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 busy with my own stuff right now. But no, I didn't I didn't I mean it didn't happen more than I didn't notice it anymore after I left. Um, I did I did do a brief. Uh, some brief contract work to help a friend out, but um, uh, which made me a bit of money. It was okay, but um, but I, I didn't find that was too much of a distraction. I thought it was a bit of a break, I guess, from from my own full time work. That's good. You're a very focused individual, <laughs> clearly, which is which is useful. And well, so you know, this this 
talked about the past and and how you got here, and and this brings us to you know one of the reasons I want to talk right now and and get a podcast up right away is you've got a Kickstarter called Space Team Admirals Club, and I will include of course the URL in uh, in the show notes oh, thank and you. Um, or search on Space Team Admirals Club. Also that works, uh, and uh, this is a very interesting project. You currently have the number of the beast of backers, just so you know, six six six. As I look at this, so oh. auspicious for your. <laughs> <laughs> Since that number was invented anyway, it doesn't matter. But the uh, you know so you've got a, you've got a, a fair amount of interest in this already, and I, I'm curious how you came on this path out of space team and you know, out of the conventional world of employment, out of space team, and then said, all right, the thing I'm going to do is I'm going to raise money to do more of what I'm doing. How did you get to this point? Uh, well. Um... It happened because of Space Team and, and the way Space Team took off. Mm. Uh, because as as I mentioned, it was supposed to be a practice project, and I would immediately start working on my next game, which I would then charge for and say, "Hey, if you like Space Team, why don't you pay me five dollars for my next game, or something like that?" Uh, but uh, but because I because uh, of all the success of Space Team and traveling around, showing it, and and winning these awards and everything, uh, much much of which I attribute to to it being free. Uh, I decided that I wanted to keep making free games, and and there's there's a there are there are various reasons for this, and uh, and I try to explain them in the in the Kickstarter campaign, and I've just posted an update actually on the campaign that goes into more detail. But I decided that I I I actually want to continue making games for free and and find funding in another way, and you know I thought about various ways that I could make make more money from Space Team, you know, change it so that so that it it costs money or that, or that, you know, there was some kind of limited, limited number of games you could play and then you have to pay for more and nothing, nothing seemed right to me. It all felt wrong. So I decided to try to instead take advantage of this audience that I now had because it's had over a million downloads now. So, um, so there are a lot of people who know about the game and who know about me, I hope. Um, and so I, I decided that, that maybe I could raise some money, uh, from them directly, uh, using Kickstarter because I really like the, the patronage model. The, the pay what you can model seems very fair. And, you know, obviously people can pay more than the standard $1 iPhone game price on Kickstarter. Maybe they'll pay 5 or $10 or, or more. Uh, so I, I figured, yeah, why not give it a try uh, and see if um, people are ready to support uh, a developer directly uh, instead, of a, instead of a game. Uh, and there's a... There's a tricky thing here, which uh, I, I know you've worked around because it was approved um, to go up on Kickstarter. Is Kickstarter typically they don't want to fund they want to fund projects, not mm -hmm. you know sort of I don't know like living expenses or activity or or what have you. How did you structure this so that it fit into the project uh, the project framework that tr that Kickstarter requires? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, this was definitely a concern of, of mine as well at the beginning, and I, I talked to them about it several times. Uh, just to make sure that it was it was valid. Uh, I, I was any if they, if they said no, I was prepared to you know go to Indiegogo or one of the other crowdfunding sites because I still wanted to. I was still um, pretty excited about this this way of funding. But um, but yeah, they so they do have this uh, this policy that you know they they want something that has a, that's a project that has a has a specific uh, end and it will be completed and 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 they don't want fund my life projects as they call them mm -hmm. for paying paying bills or tuition but this my project is it's really not a fund my life project um uh it's it's more of a fund my game development and it's very similar in fact to to all the other video game kickstarters uh, i just present it slightly differently i'm I'm still going to be working on games the money is going to be going towards 
the game development itself. Uh, several games are going to be produced uh, as part of this project. I'm going to be working a bit more on Space Team, and then I have these two other games that I that I talk about in the in the campaign. But it's going to be it just gives me a bit more flexibility. I get to cause, because game development is unpredictable, and so so I'm just being a bit more transparent about what's actually happening, and I'm going to document what happens, document my progress, document the decisions I make, but it gives me a bit more flexibility to pursue opportunities that come up or, or to change the uh, schedule around, uh, depending on you know what makes sense at the time. Because a year is, is, is really hard to, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen a year from now. And, uh, and that's, that's the sort of scope of this campaign. And, and many games on, on Kickstarter take more than a year. They maybe take two or three years and, and the design changes and all this stuff happens anyway. Uh, I'm just trying to be more honest about it. Hey, let's pause for a moment so I can tell you about New Relic, a sponsor this week. Our friends at New Relic asked me to take a minute and say a big data thank you to all you data nerds out there who build all the great stuff that we all know and love. They wanted me to give a shout out to the developers, the software geeks, the code jockeys, those brave few who see things differently. High fives, the rule breakers and disruptors who work late nights, who focus so hard, who create the internet that we know and love. Now, what's really cool about New Relic is that they help everyone's software work better. They make your job easier. Nowadays, if you're in any business, you've got software as a critical component of it, even if you're not a software company. Software powers our apps, it runs our databases, it manages our accounts, and it it powers the e-commerce sites and email programs and everything else. So what New Relic offers is a way to monitor the entire process of software. They help improve software performance so that users have a better experience and your business is more successful. You can visit newrelic.com slash disruptors for an offer and more information about their all-in-one web application performance management tool. Their software lets you see performance from the end user experience through servers down to the line of application code. Check them out at newrelic.com slash disruptors. And now back to our program. You have different funding models that will work in different ways. I realize is that there's, um, you know, there's always you know direct donations and, and things like Indiegogo and some of the other sites are actually like fun. They do offer or let you do fund my life sorts of things. Like okay, whatever money mm-hmm. I raise, um, this will help me, and you know this will count for two months of my life, or I'll have to take on some contract works. So this will take longer, but they have a lot more flexibility. But it seems like you wanted to go for the you know the gold ring as it were, and say here is a budget for a year to make this this pile of things happen. Pre-orders would have been tricky, right? Because you you want to release, in this scenario, the games that you're going to develop, uh, you won't be charging for them, right? Or it would only not be like a Blabyrinth and Shipshape. Will those wind up being paid games that backers get or will those be free games? No, those are going to be, like the idea is that they're going to be free for everybody, um, even people who don't back the campaign. Great. So this is a lift all boats kind of thing. Yeah. Every, everybody benefits from you contributing. Everybody in the world benefits you know, from this campaign. Exactly, and so yeah, I, I knew I had to. So it's you know, it's different. It's that's not how usually how these things work. Usually, Kickstarter campaigns for video games, anyway, act like a, a pre-order system or a store. And in fact, Kickstarter themselves have, have said on many occasions that Kickstarter isn't a store, and, right. <laughs> and it's more it's more like a patronage system. So I think I'm actually, I think my project is actually closer to the to the sort of founding principles of Kickstarter. But yeah, the reason I wanted to do it with a fixed goal instead of a, instead of like flexible funding like uh, like Indiegogo offers. Is that I? Uh, I want to make these games free, and if I if I do that, um, I have to I have to be sure that I have enough time to you know finish them, and I can't because I can't just start charging money for them uh, at a moment's notice. I need I needed to know that I could 
keep doing this for a, a set amount of time. And that if I couldn't raise that money, then I would charge money for the games and just do, do you know, do the normal thing. And that's probably what I'll do. If the, if the campaign fails, then mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I have to make money in, in another way. And, and the traditional way of doing it is to, is to charge money for your games. Uh, but that's not something I can just decide to do on a whim. I have to like plan for it and, you know, design the game such that they, it works in that way. So I wanted to, I wanted to be sure upfront about, about which direction I'm going. So this is, it's an experiment. It's, it's an experiment to see if people are ready to, to fund a developer directly instead of a specific game. And if I can be sustainable doing this, then I can keep making games for free and focus on, and mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have to compromise them. Uh, you know, uh, I can, I can make whatever uh, weird crazy stuff I want and I don't have to worry about which parts of the game to charge money for and how to like how to like restrict it or how to where to cut it off or make this these levels uh cost money uh or or even just or even pick a pick a price in the first place because because there's no correct price for these things you know it's all artificial and and you know any price you pick is going to be wrong so the unseen hand of the marketplace picks the price for you by by rewarding you or punishing you for the price you set but for, yeah. but so free is a great price uh sometimes not always and uh with a million downloads this highlights i think one of the difficulties with the uh app store and i have this as a as a magazine publisher on uh on the App Store, I have the same problem, although it's slightly differently, is that you don't have access to those million people. You can't message them. I mean, conceivably, you could have – you could use Apple push notifications and other things on Android. There's ways to do it, but anything that has to do with another project you have is sort of out of limits for Apple. You'd be punished for that. So Apple does this – I think it's a weird thing where you can have a mass audience. You have a million people who've downloaded it. You can have some huge number who've played it maybe you – know, and, and then, of course, the you – know, Descending progression of how many people play it or use it regularly, but you can't exactly reach those people personally without ostensibly violating rules. You have to still go out into media like this podcast or other means to try to attract them. Is that is that discouraging at all that you have a big audience that's hard to reach, or or are you encouraged by the fact there's a big audience you can reach? This is the glass half full, half empty side. Well, to be honest, I I didn't realize i wasn't allowed to reach them because in the new update for space team i i have a link to the to the admirals club the kickstarter and i'm hoping to be able to tell people about my new games there as well uh yeah if that's if that's against apple policies then uh i wasn't aware of that I and don't maybe know. they'll well, shut me down but uh it's very specific though like so if you do it see that's the frustrating part is because of apple's review process you never know if you're quite violating the guidelines unless you even if you do even if you do nothing like this even if you make a game period that has no links to anything in the outside world yeah but, you, like you can't do uh, you can't use push notifications to promote things that aren't related directly to the thing the app you released for instance right okay and, all right I mean, yeah that's fine but like in the game it's tricky like they don't want you to link to other stuff that you can buy unless it's something that's also an IEP, but they've changed some of those rules. I, I think the ambiguity, I mean, so I'll be curious. I, I doubt, I mean, you have enough visibility. If you were doing something that wasn't kosher, A, it probably wouldn't have made it through review because Apple yeah. does review everything. And they can tell, I mean, you know, you, these were changes. People, the reviewer can see them. It's not like, you know, you hit yeah, it yeah. in pop-up code that was obscured by encrypted JavaScript. It's uh, No, no, I, I mean, I mentioned it in the release notes it's, and it's right on the on the front page. So That's good. Well, I'm glad you weren't cherry about it. I was I was thinking that it might... Because well, it's funny because the Kickstarter is not commercial in the same way. If you were advertising another app or a like a PC game that could not be purchased in the App Store, I suspect it wouldn't get through review. But because yeah. you're promoting the notion of you creating another project, that might fall within you know. It obviously did fall within at least their their uh, 
review guidelines in terms of how much they paid attention to it. But that's that's fascinating. Right. Yeah, I was I was concerned about this as well. Uh, but I I realized that I mean, and I tried to organize it so that I I wouldn't fall afoul of the guidelines because uh, because I'm not I'm not. It's not like I'm letting people buy in-app purchases through right. some other method. And in fact, the the, the things that that they're buying uh, don't actually exist yet, right? They're not if they if they go and pay money to the Kickstarter. Uh, well, a that money might not actually come to me because if Kickstarter fails, then no money changes hands. But it's also not something that they're buying uh, outside the game because uh, because it's it's actually raising money for me to then create something that I'm going to release for free. So uh, I, yeah, I think there's enough uh, difference there. I, I, I looked I looked over their guidelines for this <laughs> this kind of thing pretty pretty carefully just yes. to make sure that I wasn't violating them. And I think I have enough uh, fodder to, uh, to to argue successfully argue my case. No, that's good. And it went through review. That's the other thing is you know going through review. They pull stuff sometimes, but it has to, it's usually when someone has hidden uh, hidden a yeah. thing. Um, but I was thinking about actually a different issue though. That's I, mean, I think it's great that you're doing that because that's certainly a way. But at any given time, at any period of time, some you know tens of thousands of people out of a million you've downloaded are going to play the game. And I was thinking more that you have an audience of a million, and if they had all come to your site and said, you can have this for free, give me your email address, I won't email you if you check or uncheck this box, you know, opt in, out during that, whatever. Like, then you could have 100,000 people to email directly and give a call to action. But in the in the yeah, Apple case, true. we can't reach those people directly. Now, now as I, running a periodical, people can opt in to give me information, and a very small percentage of people do. So I do regularly email new subscribers and say, hey, do you know these features are available and try to give them value add, not upsell them on other stuff. But So that's a small percentage of people who subscribe to a publication. But with mm-hmm. the regular game, I know you can put email signups inside an app. And there's some other things you can do for tracking or or what have you. But if it, I would just wonder, I guess I wondered if it was frustrating to know there was a big audience of people who had downloaded it that you couldn't simply reach out to the ones who'd expressed an interest to be contacted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely a bit frustrating because I know these people, or a lot, a large number of these people, enjoy playing the game, and so they'd probably be interested in other stuff. But, uh, but I knew I could still just release an update, and if they, if they played Space Team enough that they opened, they opened it up after they saw that there was an update, then, uh, then they would at least see my my little banner for the admirals club and, and click on it well it's nice too that the ios 7 that it pulls the updates in for people unless you just disable it so people get the update they don't have to actually go and like do an update anymore so they're going right. to see it the next time they they launch could you run me through so I, i'd love to just promote what you're doing here too a little bit which is run me through what you're going to offer people i mean because some of the what's in the space team admirals club is specific um and in <laughs> there's another like little funny app thing too is that you're going to create customized you'll you'll create for some people who pledge at the right level they're going to get a customized version of space team with with neat stuff in it yeah so i i i made sure not to not to offer anything that was directly available in space team like i can't just uh, offer the upgrades in space team as as kickstarter rewards because that would be i think against apple's guidelines mm. uh, so i had to offer other things and um uh, you know, usually for these these projects, people give T-shirts or whatever. Uh, but I wanted to keep the uh, keep the physical rewards pretty small. Um, so so most of my rewards are, are digital rewards, uh, and then I, I do have a few small physical rewards just because they because I want this to feel like a, a membership club since it's since you're supporting a, a person rather than a game. 
Well, and you go to – I should point out like the convention thing. Like I've just un- started to understand how for um, the gaming world and the comics world, the cartooning world, like there's so many co- conventions now and more have been started that the physical thing seems like a useful thing even if you're not selling it at you know, a booth or selling the stuff. But people will identify. At, you know, They'll get the embroidered patch and they might put it on their jacket and come up to you and say, hey, thanks. Have you signed it or whatever? That there actually is – you could make a physical connection with people who actually enjoy the game in a way that maybe there wasn't as much of that uh, several years ago. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, uh, I, I've, I've seen tweets from people and messages from people who, who have, you know, they want to play Space Team with someone and they're sitting in an airport and, and they, they write a sign that says, <laughs> I will play Space Team with you and hold it up. I'm not sure if it was a joke, but it sounds like something that people might actually do uh, just, just awesome. to advertise the fact that they want to play Space Team with someone. And, uh, and, and yeah, people have made new friendships uh, by having strangers play games with them because it, yeah, you do have to you have to talk to people, you have to cooperate, and and you're right there in the same room. So um, so yeah, I think some kind of patch or or badge or indication or button, uh, that that advertises the fact that you play this game or that you support me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it would be really it's going to be really really cool to to see that. So the, so there's these cool things that you can can modify, but this is I was going to say like not to get too deep in the development side, but you have to um, you can release a custom version of the app, but it has to go through this business enterprise thing that apple does on the on the google side because google doesn't close that off in the same way you can just send people an app but on the on the, yeah. uh, on the apple side you have to people have to be sure they qualify as part of the bit but it's it's interesting but i haven't seen anybody actually do this yet and i think it's cool that you're that you're trying it that you will um that you'll be able to deliver a custom version to people i think that's a great thing to do right yeah well actually i I, I had already been approached, in fact, before the Kickstarter by, by two different companies who wanted me to build. They, they liked Space Team and they wanted to have a, a customized version for their, for their company. Because right it has, uh, you know, I mean, uh, along with the, the sci-fi technobabble gibberish, uh, uh, the, the game, there are, it's peppered with a few uh, canned phrases, you know, like wash dishes and feed, feed the cat and stuff. And, and people wanted, people had their own jargon, their own lingo, uh, and they wanted to... <laughs> Have custom games where they where they shouted you know you know uh, uh, check in you know perforce change list or something uh, and and so so I I was actually commissioned uh, to to build two custom versions for companies before the campaign uh, even existed and so I I figured that hey this is if people actually want this maybe I could start a start a service um, charging people um, for my time to build them custom versions of Space Team but instead of doing that I, I decided to roll it into the Kickstarter and offer it at, at one of the higher reward tiers to uh, to get more interest, but also to just sort of wrap it up and, and bring more people to the to the campaign. And uh, and so yeah, they can uh, if you if you contribute at, at the high at the uh, high commissioner tier level, <laughs> then you get uh, you get a version of Space Team with your own your, all your own words and phrases and and graphics, and you can change the sounds and the, all the control panel images. And uh, and you get a and it's and it's a new version of the app. In fact, you can it'll you know show up on your home screen with a new icon. Um, so so yeah, that's pretty exciting. Um, you already got one person in that that level at this yeah, at this point, yeah. and that's a that's a significant. All I need is uh, one or two, and it'll it'll make a big difference. The so, higher uh, yeah. rewards, it takes longer to get people to sign up for the higher rewards. That comes late in the campaign often because they're making decisions, or mm. they're like, oh, and they're like, oh yeah. yeah, they have to justify it to their yeah. boss or whatever. or yeah, or to their wife. <laughs> <laughs> This is a family game. It's, it's, yeah. better than, it's better than going to Disneyland. We'll have this game forever. Uh, and so two new games are going to be part of the roadmap too, right? So Blabyrinth, you, you plan to complete within the year. And Shipshape, uh, it looks like the, part of what you, you plan to do part of uh, the work on that. And you've been thinking that for a while. What, Blabyrinth is another cooperative uh, game. What's, what's that going to be like? Yeah, so 
So uh, Labyrinth was something that was, was basically new. I mean, it came out of the, again, it came out of the, the response to Space Team uh, because uh, I realized how much I enjoyed making and how much other people enjoyed playing these local multiplayer games, uh, cooperative local multiplayer games. And so I, I decided I needed to explore this space further. And so uh, I, I had a bunch of other ideas that I managed, I tried to build into this, uh, this new new game that was that played a lot like Space Team and is also inspired by a, a board game uh, in a similar way to the, the way Space Team was. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm hoping that I'm hoping that it's going to be. I'm trying to keep the scope small as well. Uh, it's it's a it's another co-op game about working together as a team in the same room. But in this case, it's uh, you're following clues to find secret treasure in a mysterious labyrinth. <laughs> um, and uh, there's going to be a bit more. It's going to be a bit more uh, depth in the game. It's going to be a bit more complicated than than Space Team. Uh, and there's, there's going to be a bit of sort of improv and role play. I'm trying to. I'm I'm going to. Ex I'm experimenting with with the, the social dynamics of people uh, playing in the same room uh, to an extent that Space Team didn't. Like, Space Team covered shouting at each other and you know reading <laughs> reading people's body language and, and figuring out how to talk over each other. Mm. But I want I want a slightly different feel for for Blabyrinth. So uh, so yeah, I'm I'm playing around with that for a bit. And this will be a game that people can win. People can you can succeed at Blabyrinth. There'll be an endpoint to the game. Yes, I think I think there's going to be an endpoint, but it's going to be replayable. Like the levels are yes. going to be ra randomly generated. As it's similar to the way Space Team is. Every time you play, is different. Well, that's what I wonder because Labyrinth implies right when you have twisty uh, maze of twisty passages, all different. You can change each time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's it's going to be generated, but um, uh, but there but you will the, the sessions will be short. You'll be able to finish game in you know five or ten minutes in the same way that Space Team. Is. Oh, that's great! Oh, so you can just pick up, and that's fun too. So it's it's casual in the sense you have to. Uh, the learning curve will be low, and it's not a huge investment of time to play it, but you can play it again and again. Yeah, that's the idea. That's oh, I see, I see. And then ship shape. You've been talking about ship shape for a bit, a bit longer. And this, uh, as I understand it, so you you'll start work on ship shape as part of the year, but you're not planning to have it completed in that time. Yeah. So ship shape was the game that I I quit my job to make. This was the one I was really excited about, and uh, but it's but it's much more ambitious. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm expecting it to take a year of, of time, like to, for me to build it out. And so, uh, so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to make any promises that I can't keep. And and since this Kickstarter is only going to last for a year, and I have have more plans for Space Team and then and then Labyrinth, uh, I'm expecting to to st start on it, but but not finish on it. And so, uh, uh, and I I don't I don't know exactly what's going to happen. This is one of the one of the key points about this whole Kickstarter is that is that my schedule is going to be a bit flexible. So it's possible that um, you know if if on the off chance the labyrinth totally fails, like I I, I get halfway through it. I have a <laughs> working prototype already. Yes. It seems like it's going to be fun, but it, it's, it's very possible that I'll I'll find some kind of uh, horrible roadblock that prevents me from from releasing it. Then maybe I'll focus on ship shape instead and, and try to figure out the problems with labyrinth later. I keep thinking about do you, do you have community supported agriculture in uh, CSAs in Canada? Is that a concept? Uh, yeah, we uh, we have uh, absolutely. We we get a food box every every week from local local farms. Oh, that's great! I just thought it might have a different name. I didn't think you couldn't buy from farms. I should say it's like, yeah. do you have food in Canada? Is there? No, sorry, but yeah, yeah but... I, I, I'm not sure if they're called CSAs, but but yeah, we have the same idea. <laughs> but I was thinking this is the way you describe this. I'm like, oh, this is a CSA for a programmer. It's like hmm. I'm going to give you a certain amount of money, and in a year you have a you have a rough idea of what's going to be in the box that I get, and yeah. some of it will be delivered yeah. over the year, and some of it might take longer. But I, I was thinking. 
boy, I would love to subscribe to Henry Smith. Like, how, like this is the first step in that path. But if you rolled this after the first year, if you fund this uh, in this manner and then go, okay, we're getting towards year two and you have all these people who are involved. You've got, you know, you'll probably wind up with 1,500 or 2,000 people uh, who've come at this level. It's like, and you deliver stuff. You're like, okay, I want to do this again, but let's not t- do the overhead of Kickstarter. Let's just, you know, $25 a year buys you hen- some Henry Smith. Mm-hmm. Henry Smith will deliver interesting an interesting array of of products of different sizes and shapes to you. Over it, it feels yeah. like it could be a model, and people subs- people subscribe to you. Well, yeah, that's exactly um, what I'm hoping will happen. Is that this Kickstarter will act as as a precedent for other people who want to do something similar? Because there's a lot of indie developers that I'd love to support in this way. Like they their games are are, are much smaller on on niche or or very weird or glitchy, and and so they, they don't have mass appeal necessarily, but. But they're they're really interesting, good games, and I think it's important they get made. And so I would love to just p- keep paying those developers to make games. I don't, yeah. I don't I don't care what they are. I don't care how many of them get made. But I would love to do that. And 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 there's it's there isn't an easy way of doing that. Now, now there are uh, starting to become services like uh, Patreon, for example, which is which is specifically designed as sort of patronage model where you subscribe to an artist. Um, and there are, there are reasons I knew about this, uh, about Patreon before I made my Kickstarter and there are specific reasons I chose not to, uh, not to go with Patreon. There's an audience side. I, I've been working with Patreon for several months and I, and I actually, um, so each month I get over $300 from oh, people yeah. supporting the podcast directly, which is, which is great. It helps support audio editing and other things, uh, travel and so forth. But the, uh, they're, they're still in the building phase. They only have some tens of thousands of people who are backing it. And, you know, at some point I, I have a lot of hope in what they're doing and there are some similar systems, but I mean, imagine when they have several hundred thousand people, I think Kickstarter has many millions. Is it over? Yeah. I forget. They've got several millions at least who've contributed at least once. And so when I think, okay, Patreon is at the very beginning steps, what happens when they have 500,000 and a million and there's more cross pollination, or you could band together um, with other developers and say, you know, we are not a studio. We're all doing our own, we're all independents, but mm-hmm. $50 a year gets you the output of all of us. And that's like some farms have done that in the Seattle area where it's oh, yeah. multiple farms band together for their, you know, it's a different sort of CSA, but it means you don't get all mustard greens in March. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you get a few fruits coming from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you're definitely not going to, if you have a group of developers, they're certainly not all going to deliver the same game, right? So, yeah, that, I think that's a great idea. Or at the same time, the staggered thing. But Yeah. Um, well, great. Well, so pe- people need to check out your Kickstarter at uh, – at kickstarter.com search for space team admirals club and uh and help henry make great things i think this is a wonderful thing i I love the fact that you are completely open to this being this is not a make or break clearly you had money put aside you've got other plans you can go different directions but this is a great thing to experiment is to say you know you know what is it worth to people who love this other game i did to to fund me doing more with that and with other stuff I, i think it's a wonderful idea Okay, good. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm going to go back and I realize I haven't backed it yet. I'm seeing this thing that has a big green button. I need to go click that and, uh, and other folks do the same. But so, Henry, we'll, uh, I'll check in. I'll post an update after the Kickstarter is over and see where things go. But, uh, but good luck on the uh, – well, still another, uh, I think, 10 days when this uh, show will air, or eight days, and, uh, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. 
You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.